This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So, welcome, welcome. You're here this morning with Dr. Jeff. Well, it may be afternoon, depending on where you are. You're here. Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, our live call-in radio show. We're here for you. We're here for your pets. I'm sitting here playing with one of my 10. This is my, my little Russian dwarf hamster. I mean, I haven't had any kind of these animals since my kids were really little. Now I have grandkids. As a matter of fact, this is Lucy. Lucy is a boy. So don't don't even ask. No, what happened was my, my grandkids saw her, what they thought was a her, thought, oh, my God, so cute. And um, so they called her Lucy. Then as I pick him up and roll him over, <laughs> clearly it was not a Lucy. So I call him Lou. So uh, he's Lou or Lulu. But Russian dwarfs are known to be like really bitey and aggressive. This little thing is so cute. He It's like he's the happiest thing in the world. Eats like crazy. He just wants to play. He's really, really, really adorable. So mm, I'm messing with him while I'm starting my show. I'm going to put him back. There you go, big guy. So anywhere, we're here for you. Easy to get a hold of us. If you have any questions about your pets, now's the time to ask. The advice is free, and you can't you can't beat free. So um, give us a call, 877-385-8882. Once again, that number, write it down, 877-385-8882. You can join us here live on um I'm here on Pet Life Radio, and um, just ask questions and whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about. I always have things to talk about. I'm never at a loss for words, just just so you know. So um, anyway, a couple of things. First of all, I'm perusing the news, the American Veterinary Medical Association and the American Animal Hospital Association, a couple of stories I try to share with you, just, just to, so you can kind of be aware of what's going on in the, in the pet and animal world. So um, this is really, really cool. So scientists, I'm going to kind of read it to you, just a, a paraphrase. They mapped out six neural networks. Those are networks in the brain linked to specific functions. And they found that these networks are shaped differently based on what their associated traits are. For example, it could be with breeds like a hunting versus a herding versus a guard dog. These are all types of mapping systems so they can start working backwards and by the type, the formation of the mapping of these neural networks, they can tell you the purpose of what this dog was for, whether it was a breeding, a herding dog, is it a guard dog, is it, you know, is it a hunting dog? I mean, I, it's really fascinating. Where this could come in handy is they feel that what it could do is lead to very specific veterinary breed specific veterinary treatments for different disorders. So now we once we understand more about the brain itself and how it works, then we can actually do a better job to understand when it comes to treatment of neurologic dysfunction, what's the best thing to do. So I thought that that's that's pretty amazing. More research on being done. We talked about this was last week or the week before CBD. It's going to be in the news a lot. I'm going to share a lot of things with you as I read and learn about them. But at CSU, Colorado State University, they have been doing most of the research, mostly because the state of Colorado had legalized marijuana, CBD, with THC, et cetera. And anyway, so we want to talk about that, that what the volumes, percentages 
of the CBD, of the THC, are in of these many, many, many different types of products. So those are things we need to know. So um, it's still working on. They're going to look at, you know, looking into the the effect it has on pets. But I think the good news is that it's going to be something that we will be learning more about and we're going to know more about. And we'll get to the point where it can be part of a treatment regimen. My feeling is positive that it will. Uh, Depending on states, however, for example, and I mentioned this here in California, I cannot recommend it. I cannot prescribe it. I cannot sell any product with it in my hospital, which I think is a little ridiculous since the safety of CBD itself, even CBD from hemp, is it is the safety margin is huge empirically anecdotally i hear so many amazing stories about cbd and if the positive effects it has on animals so it's just a matter of time hang in there so we talked about this before i usually talk about this during holidays like fourth uh, of july labor day memorial day when you went the barbecue holidays we're going to be out there barbecuing corn cobs corn cobs can be deadly not just a problem actually deadly Here's what happens. The dog, first of all, likes corn, and corn is totally fine and safe. So they eat the corn cob, they chew off all the corn, and then the diameter of a cob is like the perfect diameter for most of the GI tract. It'll get into the stomach. From the stomach, it'll get into the small intestine. It's going to course through the small intestine. But all of a sudden, as it approaches what we call the ileocecocolic junction, this corn cob comes to a dead stop. It just can't fit through. It's a very kind of a winding, circuitous route that has to go through that junction. If it did get through, oh, the colon is the widest part. That'd be a breeze. So what's happening is it gets plugged. People don't know about it. The dogs get sick. And they can add, because the intestine itself, the gut itself, is working so hard to propel, to push that corn cob through, it wraps itself so tightly around it, it cuts off its own blood supply to the gut. The gut tissue dies, gets a hole, and then it starts leaking intestinal contents into the abdomen. We're talking rip-roaring major infection. So the recommendation, don't ever give your dogs corn cob. Don't let them even chew on it with you standing there when you're ready to pull that cob away. Why? Because there's going to come a time that, oh, first of all, they love corn. That's not a problem. Corn is fine. It's the cob. So what's going to happen is there's going to come a time that you threw that corn cob in the garbage. The dog's going to smell it. Trust me, they smell everything. And they're going in after it. So you don't even ever want them to get that feel and smell of what it is. So that's the recommendation. Cool story. Love these stories. Microchipped cat lost for three years from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Shows up. Basically, it was found in a field in a, in a park somewhere, several, several miles away. A good Samaritan took it to the hospital, the veterinary hospital. Um, the cat was full of fleas. It was emaciated. It was just terrible. And they scanned it and found the microchip. And they called the owners three years later. They thought for sure this thing was gone. They, they thought for sure this cat was eaten by a coyote, something hit by a car. I mean, after three years, you kind of you kind of give up hope. So that's really cool. Love those stories. Bottom line, get your pet's microchip. There's no excuse not to do it. Not one excuse not to do it. It doesn't cause cancer. Where these stories are coming from, I have no idea. You want to get your pet's microchipped. It is the best thing to do. It is a type of identification that cannot be messed with, cannot be modified. The microchip number that they're going to get is kind of like a fingerprint. There's only going to be one of them. And by the way, If you're going to get it, do not let 
anyone talk you into any type of microchip unless it is an ISO compatible microchip. How do you know? You For the other microchips, Avid chips, for example, they may say they're ISO compliant. There's a, a certain pattern of number, and that is that you want 15 numeric. Once again, there are 15 numbers. The Avid has, says AVID and then has nine numbers. That's not ISO. Then you have the old home agains. They've changed. It's 10 digits, a mixture of letters and numbers, not ISO. You want ISO, that means the new home again chips, the Bayer chips, all the other chips you can do. Save this life microchip, which is one of my favorite. That's the one I recommend. But the bottom line is it has to be ISO compliant. And you'll just look at the chip number, 15 number digits. That's ISO. But get your pets microchip. 18 people in South Carolina subjected to and having to be treated for rabies. A little puppy was rescued, cute little thing, and at least 18 people that were identified handled this puppy. Turns out puppy had rabies. So uh, it was picked up. It was found on I-95 going through South Carolina in uh, Dorchester City. And anyway, if you are, if you heard about this, if you're around the area, if you saw this puppy, if you touched this puppy, you might want to talk to your doctor. This is something really cool. And, you know, people are always wondering how, and we know, are, do animals feel pain? You know, one of the things that, that we see is that we, in general, we think that animals feel more pain, and we know this from what we call testing nociceptors. Nociceptors are pain receptors. So let's go backwards. We never thought that animals felt the kind of pain that we feel. For example, years ago, 30 years ago, I do a spay. Dog was up and happy and running around the next day. So you figured, ah, they had no pain. Even a neuter, no pain. Well, it turns out that once we were able to start measuring pain receptor activity, we find out that these animals do experience pain. Dentistry is a perfect example. How many times have you had your pet's major dental work done and you pick them up and it's like they're a puppy again? That's how we knew that there must have been pain because after the treatment, they are acting amazingly great. They are so animated, so active, eating well. And as I said, I've heard it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Doc, oh my God, it's like a puppy again. So that way we knew that there was pain. So why don't they show it? Why is it they, are they hiding it? Well, again, when you think of from an evolutionary standpoint, if there were a group of animals and dogs, you know, are pack animals, so they would travel in packs. If there was a dog that was in pain, whether it was a, a orthopedic pain or an internal pain or an oral pain, right, an eye pain, if they were to slow down and clearly become obviously that they were not able to keep up with the rest of the pack, they were a sitting duck when it comes to a predator. So therefore, they learn how to mask their pain. and They've done it very well. So in, in essence, what we need to do is understand that pain does exist. Well, here in cats, this study was done on cats, and there's this uh, veterinarian, he's in, um, uh, his specialty is anesthesia and analgesia, and that's a, you know, it's a big new thing, veterinary medicine now. And uh, so he's a professor, and his name is Paolo Stigal, and he presented what he refers to as the feline grimace scale. And um, it's actually interesting. So it says, it's basically, he presented at the, at the American Vet Med Association conference. It rates a cat's pain based on ear, whisker, head position, orbital tightening. It's around the, like, like an expression of, of like it's squinting around the eyes and muzzle tension. 
And he can generate a score of 1 to 10, 10 obviously being a lot of pain. So it's got to be something if you see any of these things. You look at ears, do the ears go back, whiskers, head position, orbital tightening, and muzzle tension. These are things that can contribute to pain recognition in cats. So if you have cats and you're wondering when you're squeezing on their tail, what, what, what are they acting? What are they doing? If you have any of those things, obviously they're feeling pain. Of course, when they turn around and try to bite you, uh, you know they're feeling pain. Anyway, we have a male. So let me read this real quick. It was sent to me. All right. Our dog. This is coming from John from Holland, New York. Our dog, it's a Cocker Spaniel, loves ice cubes. Is there anything I can add to make them flavored and safe? Also, we just lost our Shih Tzu, 15 years old, passed away at home. Uh, very sad to hear that, John. 15, by the way, at a good age, you obviously gave your little Shih Tzu a fantastic life. Listen to our podcast. So, has a son trying to get into vet school? John, yes, get reach out to me. So anyway, um, oh, <laughs> he says, I'm glad you shared your first, first try. I didn't get it my second or third either. Took me four. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you. And it was 100% worth it. I wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, it's, it's interesting that and I tell this story that, yes, I applied four times back. And this is back when a long time ago. I started applying to vet school in 1976, 77. I finally got in in 80. So back then, if you were coming from a state that had a veterinary school, we had Davis in California, you could only apply to that state. Now you can apply to 20 vet schools if you want. There were only 24, by the way, at that time. Now there were 30. And um, so it was, and it was really, really, really tough. Davis, number one vet school in the nation, number one in the world. So during that time, I didn't sit on my behind. I worked and I worked and I worked. And I was a head technician at an animal hospital. I worked with an equine veterinarian. I was a technician there at an equine vet hospital. By the time I got to vet school, it was literally a breeze. I knew, I could say some, in some ways I knew more, I, maybe I knew more, had more hands-on experience than a lot of the residents. Why? Because what did the residents do? They were really smart. I wasn't. So they got into vet school right away from college. They graduate vet school, right? They go straight into their internship. From their internship, they go straight into a residency. Where were they getting their hands-on experience? I had over 3,000 hours of hands-on experience when I got to school. Therefore, I mean, clinics for me were a breeze. I absolutely loved it. So John, don't worry and tell your son not to worry that as long as he works and gets experience, that he'll be fine. Anyway, ice cubes. What can you add flavor? Yes, you can. You can buy things like chicken broth, beef broth, and uh, there's a little salt, but mix it in with the water. It's, it's fine. And put those in the ice cube tray and let them turn into ice cubes. I would, if you have an automatic ice cube maker, I would not recommend pouring broth into the water system. However, make your own, get the good old-fashioned plastic, whatever, ice cube trays, and make your own ice cubes with the, um, the broth, and that would be a great thing. If he likes them now, he'll love them if there's some um, chicken or beef flavor, things like that. So, um, and, and you know, interestingly, a lot of dogs do like munching on ice cubes. And one of the things I say that when you have a dog that is just getting through a gastrointestinal problem, like a vomiting episode, that stomach is like twisted in knots. So what happens is that when it is, when it's like that, anything that goes into that stomach and stretches the stomach wall, even something as benign as water can induce vomiting again. So my recommendation often is instead of getting about filling up a bowl of water where they can sit and lap the whole thing up all at once, why don't you put a couple of ice cubes in an empty water bowl? 
That way, as the ice melts, he can go up to the water bowl, drink the water, the melted ice, but it's only parts of the time. So basically, it's just, it's almost like you standing there with a pitcher of water and very slowly pouring a little bit in, 15 minutes, a little more, then a little more, a little more. It is sort of regulating how quickly that dog can drink water. So ice cubes are a really good thing. And yes, my one of my labs loves chewing on ice cubes, especially when it's hot. So that would be my recommendation. Best of luck, John, to your son. If he has any questions, by the way, have him reach out to me at drjeff at petliferadio.com, and I'd be happy to uh, you know, give him some advice. If he's from New York, probably will apply to Cornell. But there, I tell you, there are a lot of options now of schools that are totally accredited by the American Veterinary Medical Association. You have, you have the school in St. Kitts. Uh, Ross University, you have St. Regis University, you have Western University here in California and Los Angeles area, Pomona. There are other schools out there now, new schools, relatively new, that I have worked with. In fact, one of my current associates went to Western University here in Los Angeles. He is phenomenal. And one of my other associates actually went to school in New Zealand. It used to be that the other English-speaking vet schools, the ones in England, Ireland, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, where she went to school in Massey University, would never take Americans. But now they are. And I understand it's less expensive, believe it or not. So that is a possibility. One of my former associates went to school in Edinburgh in Scotland. So there are many, many opportunities here for young veterinary hopefuls to uh, get into vet school. So anyway, don't go away. We'll be right back after these short words. When we come back, we're going to talk about briefly, obviously, allergies. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lico Chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lico Chops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. And before the break, a little tease about allergies. And, um, you know, it's, it's still one of the number one reasons we're going to see pets in a hospital. Uh, we have orthopedic problems, limping. We have gastrointestinal problems, vomiting and diarrhea. And we have skin problems, allergy. And what's so interesting, first of all, on the surface, regardless of the allergen, we typically see skin problems in dogs. Just wait a second. If you have a certain a food allergy, okay, you're going to have typically GI signs, maybe, maybe some anaphylactic type reaction with the breathing, swelling up, but you're not necessarily going to scratch. How about a pollen allergy? When we have pollen allergies, which are very common in people and pets, what's our major organ that's affecting our respiratory tree? Runny eyes and, and stuffed up nose and runny nose. And yet, interestingly, in dogs, whether it's an inhaled allergen, whether it's an ingested allergen, whether it's an allergen that touches us, an allergen that bites us like a flea or a mosquito, all of the symptoms are 
skin. I should stay from absolutes. Not all, 95%. Okay. So why is that? And how do we know what to do? First of all, some basics. Dogs are very pollen allergic. Most of the allergies that we're going to see in animals and dogs, especially, are going to be pollen, and we call atopy, inhaled allergies. So what the first thing that should surprise you is that all of the hoopla about allergic foods and grain-free and gluten this, and that maybe, maybe 15% of allergies in dogs are food-related. And of the 15%, there are typically four main culprits. Beef, poultry, which is chicken and turkey, and corn and wheat. So to say I ought to keep my pet away from grain is silly. Why? First of all, grains are a good source of protein. They kind of like them. It's a good filler, not very fattening. And there's no reason why you should avoid it because they kind of like them. And um, usually when we make a, a pet food, we're looking at a source of protein and a source of carb, grain, and grain's a good source of carbs. And as I said, you also get some protein. That's why, um, and legumes also could be good. But as we talked a number of weeks ago about this whole insanity with cardiomyopathy in dogs, possibly because of the grain-free diets, the link still to this day, we're not sure why. At first, they, it was thought that maybe legumes don't have enough uh, cysteine and methionine, which are the building blocks for the dog to make taurine. And taurine is the amino acid necessary to help prevent cardiomyopathy. So then they tested and said, wait a second, there's plenty of cystic methionine in there. So uh, it can't be that. Maybe there's something else in there that blocks that reaction. Maybe it's a different type of cystic methionine. Who knows? We don't know yet. But don't think because you want to be grain-free that your dog has to be grain-free. And, and um, anyway, the allergies that we would see um, are usually skin-related. So in dogs, before we get it, we're going to get into some specific diagnostics next week and treatments. We're going to go ahead and just talk about first some of the, the to recognize allergies. First of all, dogs' bodies are like a map for us, kind of like that brain thing I talked about earlier when it comes to allergies. Based on the location, and again, of course, there's going to be crossover, and of course, there's going to be overlap, and of course, a dog who's allergic to one thing is probably going to be allergic to other things as well. But when the dog presents, with scabs and sores and scratching on his lower back by the base of his tail. And sometimes you see dogs that look like they were shaved because they have no hair left. The culprit there is typically fleas. When they are going after themselves on their abdomens, inside their thighs, okay, and you see sores, scabs, redness, and they're turning around and they're chewing that area, think pollens, think the inhaled allergies, molds, grasses, weeds, trees, we call that atopy. Most often, it will represent itself there. When Also ears for atopy, by the way. When they are chewing at their feet, when they are, especially the front feet, but chewing at their feet like crazy, where you see what we call saliva staining, then we also, and also rubbing their faces, maybe along the carpet or a wall, and going after their ears, now you can think food allergy. So again, this is not the only diagnostic tool that you're going to use, but it kind of gives you an idea of what needs to be done, where we are, et cetera. So those are some things you want to keep in mind. Anyway, we are out of time. As, you, as I told you earlier, I have no trouble talking. So um, when you want me to talk about something you specifically want to know about, send me a note to drjeff, drjeff at petliferadio.com. You can also, if you want to reach me for a consult, um, now that our air vet is set up, you can go to Google Play or to the Apple Store, depending on your service provider, 
Is it, uh, is it like an iOS or an Android, your phone? And download AirVet, and you could put um, me, Centri- VCA Century is your primary hospital for now until we get your veterinarian to join on the, the service on the network. Put me, Dr. Jeff Werber, as your, your um, primary veterinarian, and then when you log on, I will get the notation, and I will pick up the phone. We can talk specifically to you. It's all video chat. It's great. And um, first call is free, covered by uh, Pet First Pet Insurance. And um, anyway, it'll be a great way to communicate, save you a trip to your veterinarian, possibly. But uh, if not, you will at least go to your vet as an educated pet parent. So uh, anyway, until next time, have a great week or two. I may be filming uh, something for my new project, which I'll share with you after it comes out next Sunday. But um, we will be around the following Sunday and uh, for sure. And anyway, if you have any questions, you know how to reach me. Have a great week. Take care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.